On April 18, 1983, a truck that was purchased in Texas was shipped over to Beirut, Lebanon, where it was loaded with 2,000 pounds of explosives, and it was driven straight to the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. The driver was able to gain access to the full compound, where he then pulled the vehicle right up next to the building and was able to detonate those 2,000 pounds of explosives. The following explosion was heard all through West Beirut, and windows were shattered up to a mile away due to the powerful blast. The damage to the building was extensive. 63 people were killed in that attack. And if that attack of terrorism wasn't bad enough, just a short six months later, there was another attack. But this time on the military barracks in Beirut, which housed our Marines and several French detachments. Um, this time, two trucks were carried full of explosives um, and even a more devastating attack. 307 people were killed in the second attack, 271 of which were Americans. And we're all very familiar with the more recent embassy attack that took place on September 11, 2012 in Benghazi, where we unfortunately we lost our ambassador as well as several other individuals. It's not often that we hear about an embassy, much less have very many of us ever been to an embassy. You can do an extensive amount of international travel and never have to set foot in an embassy, unless of course something goes wrong. And it's often that we only hear about an embassy when something does go wrong, not unlike the two stories that we just heard with Beirut and Benghazi. You see, in most cases, the embassies are not being attacked due to anything that the individuals working in those embassies did. In fact, it's highly unlikely that the terrorists knew who anybody was except for maybe the ambassador due to some notoriety. Other than that, they probably had no idea who any of the individual people were that worked there, nor had they probably ever met them. No, they were attacked because of what it is that they represented. The ambassador and the embassy staff, you see, they represent a culture. They represent a people. They represent a nation. They represent ideas. They represent belief systems. They represent the leadership of that government or kingdom which sent them there. They were attacking the embassy because the embassy represented something that they absolutely hated the idea of. And they hated to the extent that they thought they needed to do something about it. It's important for us to recognize that an embassy isn't just bringing a group of people into a foreign land. It's bringing a culture and an idea and a people into that land, into a, a foreign culture. And that embassy, which is sovereign territory by that sending nation, is completely surrounded by that foreign culture, isn't it? So it is with the church. The church functions very much like an embassy. We, are its citizens, are its ambassadors. 
except we're not representing a government in a foreign land. We're not represent, representing any earthly nation to our foreign culture. We're not representing the government of the United States in all the ideas and belief systems and structures within the U.S. government. We're not representing the president of the U.S. government or any other nation for that matter. No, we are bringing the invisible to the visible. We as the redeemed people of God are of a kingdom not of this world. We serve a far greater king and we represent a far greater kingdom, don't we? We are the ambassadors of this mighty king, our creator, our Lord, and our savior to a lost and dying world which completely surrounds us. We are called to be the lighthouse on the hill to a lost and dying world. We are revealing to this world the life-giving power of the kingdom of God through the gospel. And we have been very, given a very specific mission, and that is to spread this kingdom to the four corners of the earth. And this kingdom is made visible in and through its embassies and its ambassadors. We are its ambassadors and the church its embassy. We represent a long-awaited kingdom that was promised from old and was initiated with the coming of Christ into His creation and that blessed new covenant which was signed, sealed, delivered at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's out of this promised kingdom and new covenant that we find the beginning of the church at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's here in the book of Acts where we are picking up where the ascent Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but where He continues to rule His kingdom. And He sits at the head of His church, which was realized with the coming of and the work of the Holy Spirit. And specifically in our passage this morning, Luke gives us a first century snapshot of an embassy and its ambassadors. We will see a clear example of how it is one gains citizenship into this kingdom, the implications of that citizenship, and how that kingdom spreads. We're going to see the gospel come to life in their priorities, in their love for one another, their unity in doctrine, and their commitment to, what, to the mission to which they have been entrusted. This is a gospel-changed people living in a gospel-changed community and affecting gospel change to the world. And this is an example for us at Fisherville, and helpful, I think, for us to think through as we approach the coming new year in 2020. Let's begin by, for a little context, let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 36. Um, and remember that this is the very end of Peter's Pentecost sermon. So beginning in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. I'm going to go ahead and continue reading verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And in this amazing sermon by Peter, Peter underscores the weight of this historical moment when the promised Holy Spirit, promised by Christ himself, as well as the Old Testament prophets, burst onto the scene in a miraculous and promise-fulfilling way at Pentecost. We cannot discuss the Christian community in verses 42 to 47 without first engaging the foundation of that community described in these 36 through 41 um, by Peter. The Spirit cuts them to the heart, leads them to repentance and faith, and gifts them. This is the first new covenant community flowing from the power of the gospel. Citizenship into this community only comes one way. There is only one pathway to citizenship into the kingdom of God, and that is through the power of the gospel. These 3,000, they repented, they believed, and they were baptized, as we see in verse 41. And baptism, there's a lot that we could say um, about baptism here. What is not being said is that baptism was a requirement for salvation. Baptism is a declaration to the church and to the world that you are now a citizen of this kingdom of God. And the church is also affirming that in this individual. It is your first gospel proclamation as a new believer. So it doesn't save you, but rather it is our first act of obedience. The outward representation of what has just miraculously taken place in our lives. Most of us are probably familiar with the current immigration debates. In 2017, there was an estimated 10.5 million illegal immigrants in the United States. An illegal immigrant is defined by Webster's Dictionary as a foreign person who is living in a country without having official permission to live there. Churches, just like the nations, have those who live amongst us that are not of us. And this is helpful for us to think through as we define what the church is. The church at large has now and will continue to have until the end, until Christ returns, those who are reaping by proxy some of the benefits of Christian citizenship without having entered by way of the gospel. That is, by bowing the knee to the king of this kingdom. One cannot truly be a citizen of the kingdom and thereby receive the full benefits thereof without repentance and faith. This is not an area where we can fake it until we make it. 
So it is possible to come to church week after week, benefit from being in this Christian community to some extent, and maybe even serve that community, but be no closer to gaining citizenship and thereby receiving all that this kingdom has to offer for those who believe. The, the community that is formed through the power of the gospel is spirit-wrought, meaning that we not only become citizens of the kingdom and an ambassador for Christ, but we also receive every resource that we need to complete the mission to which we have been called. And we have been called on a mission. In fact, Scripture gives us that mission statement. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. God will resource His work, and He uses human agency to complete this work. And He placed each and every single one of us here at this particular embassy at this particular time in history, this particular time in space, for a very specific reason. Not only that, he has placed each of his ambassadors in a specific career field. He has placed us in a specific neighborhood where we live, where we have neighbors. He raised us in a specific family to be his representatives. We are all already on mission, and every single one of us already has a mission statement. And you have been resourced for that mission. You have been given a spiritual gift or a gift mix, which is several giftings in various degrees, and each one of those gifts is absolutely critical for the body of believers. Your church and your embassy to build one another up and to complete the mission of the church. We must also note that this community is unified around the gospel, its implications as well. The 3,000 souls that were saved through the preaching of Christ at Pentecost reminds us that the gospel unites us even though we come from completely different backgrounds. We come from, some of us come from completely different socioeconomic environments, different ethnic backgrounds. We have a whole world of different personality types in this church family, don't we? Reminds us that the gospel is the ultimate unifier and equalizer. And unity is a must if we are going to be a compelling community to the outside world and to spread the kingdom through our mission. And we see that unity unpacked for us in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 25, But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs, according to the promise. And first century life, was no stranger to ethnic and socioeconomic divisions, was it? That's not, that was not something that is just a recent phenomenon that we are dealing with in our current culture. 
But we see through Scripture the power of the gospel to unite, despite the different backgrounds and way of life that we all come from. Why is that important? Because it's a spectacular picture to the outside world around us when we are unified. And when we are unified around the gospel of Christ, living life together despite those differences, encouraging one another in the Lord, humbly and sacrificially meeting the needs of those around us, and worshiping together. This brings us to verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And here we find four important gospel spirit-wrought implications of the Christian community. One, teaching of the Word. Two, fellowship. Three, breaking bread. And four, prayer. We see the first mark of this community is the proper understanding of God's Word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings daily. The Spirit birthed desire in each and every believer is a right understanding of God's Word, of God and a desire and an insatiable, unquenchable desire for His Word. If we, the church, the embassy, are to go into this lost culture around us, bring the gospel to light, make disciples and teach them to obey all that God's commanded, we have to be rightly grounded in His Word. We have to have a right understanding of who God is, the gospel and what His will is. We have to be reoriented to the things of God through His Word daily and regularly as a corporate body because the culture that surrounds us is based in decisions on what makes us feel good. It is based on self-empowerment. It is grounded in false and evil philosophies and relative ideologies. We are surrounded daily and bombarded with the idolization of self. It's a means of grace and a defense against the onslaught of attacks to be properly and consistently reoriented to the Word of God. Many will be in awe and drawn to this community as God draws them to Himself, but we know that many will not. We know that many will be dismissive apathetic, or even hostile to the truths of the gospel. Noted in my introduction the sad reality of the American embassies across the globe that have been attacked from time to time. This is also a reality for the church. Our embassy, that is our church, just like the American embassy, is also under constant assault from the outside world, aren't we? We're not maybe always under a visible attack, here in the U.S., although it happens globally, where we are being attacked with guns and bombs. More often here in the U.S. and Western culture, it's more of a subtle and a subversive attack. Satan will use many tools at his disposal to divide and conquer the church. He may use those pagan philosophies. <clears throat> he might sneak them... <coughs> Excuse me. He might sneak them in the back door by dressing them up in important cultural issues. He may sneak in false teachings. He may use divisive issues. He may distract the church from the broader mission so that it no longer engages the culture and is no longer a threat. Right now, our church is under assault with LGBTQ issues. 
issues of gender and all the other ways in which the identity wars are currently being fought. We're also under attack by a more subtle enemy. That's the enemy of consumerism, extreme isolationism, and individualism. And I'm afraid that it's done tremendous damage to the Western church in our ability to complete the mission to which we've been called. In a lot of ways, I'm afraid the Western church has been lulled to sleep and distracted to the extent that many churches have ceased to be a threat to the enemy. The culture can slip in the back door of churches because it affects us in ways that we don't realize. It sneaks up on us, slowly, subtly, and it takes over. And before you know it, the church can begin to look like the culture and lose its ability to be effective. So right doctrine is foundational to the health and the protection of the church. It also helps us to learn the depth and the full implications of gospel unity. And over the course of our lives, continue to learn how that gospel affects every aspect of our life and our being. When we come together in the Spirit, unified around right doctrine, it should lead us to worship and behold the glory of of Christ. The embassy of Christ is a bastion and megaphone of absolute truth, which means it must be at the forefront of our community life. And we are to continue to grow in our knowledge and our love of God. And as the writer of Hebrews exhorts us not to remain on the milk. Our growth in our knowledge of God cannot be done in a vacuum. It must spill over into worship and a spirit-wrought love as we behold His glory and majesty. It can't help but spill over into a gospel-powered love for each other and for the lost. Looking again at Matthew 28, our mission as a church is to spread the gospel, make disciples by teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. Two things there, discipleship and evangelism are what we have been called to do. We are called to be doers of the Word. The theology that we, we do a phenomenal job, I believe, here at Fisherville of highlighting the importance of being right in our doctrine, striving for theological accuracy, has to have a result. And that result is worship. And out of worship comes a doing of the word out of gratitude to our Lord and Savior. This is the one way that the church is a means of grace to us, a gift, because we, and we are to engage one another with these truths that we find in Scripture. We are to encourage one another to love and good works. We are to admonish one another. We are to lead one another to an awe and a worship of Christ. What we are not called to is theological consumerism. We are not called to theological consumerism. That is when the desire for theological knowledge and accuracy, although is absolutely needed for the health of the church, it is a must, but it is not to be an end in and of itself. 
When, we, when the desire for theological knowledge and accuracy is used to satisfy an intellectual itch or as a means of entertainment or when we constantly separate the hearing from the doing, when church is reduced to attending a worship service without any meaningful engagement with the body of Christ, when we keep the body at arm's length and there's a lack of worship, we may be falling into theological consumerism. When there is knowledge without the love of Christ overflowing out of us to those around us, and by love in this instance, I don't mean a Western cultural definition of a love that is based purely on self-serving feelings. I am talking about a gospel-powered love that expresses itself in humble action towards others. We must be mindful as we discuss the foundation of theological truth that the theological truth and accuracy are not the end. If it is, it is a worthless theology. James reminds us in 1, chapter 1, but be doers of the word and hearers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets what a doer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Have we slipped at times into theological consumerism? Do we hear the preached word week after week, but fail to apply it in any meaningful way? Have we at times maybe reduced the church to the hearing of a powerful message, but then fail to engage in a meaningful, loving way the bride, the body of Christ? Are we growing in our love of the body and striving to continuously become doers of what it is that we have been taught? Well, Luke doesn't leave us hanging on what what this looks like. He gives us a picture here as we continue on. And so far, we've noted that this community of believers were, were miraculously saved by the gospel, and every salvation is absolutely miraculous, and they were devoted to sound doctrine. Now we're going to see the overflowing of that worship in their love for one another. First, what should be noted is that this gospel-empowered, gospel-grounded community they desired to, and they devoted to the gathering together regularly. They gathered together. They gathered to be taught daily. They gathered to fellowship. They gathered to break bread in the homes. They gathered to pray. And look at 40, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And it's through gathering together in the Spirit that the benefits of our citizenship become reality. It becomes visible. The grace of the body of Christ comes to life in front of our eyes. There was a commitment in this first century church to be with one another. And this is certainly countercultural, isn't it? And it's within this process, this act of being together, 
that it allows an opportunity for the Spirit to work in a mighty way in our lives. Our culture is starved for community because of the habit that our culture has of cutting itself off from society. We're an immensely wealthy society. And the technological developments over the last 10 years haven't helped the situation, have they? Think about what you can do from your phone. You can sit in your house, order on Amazon, order your groceries. You don't even have to leave your house anymore to socialize or to engage another human being. You could live the remainder of your life in your house. That is absolutely remarkable, and it hasn't helped. We have everything that we need physically, homes, cars, food, entertainment. We live in an abundance of physical blessing, and we don't want for much. The problem, though, is it makes it easier, easy for us to confuse our physical realities with our spiritual realities. The idea of a churchless Christian is absolutely foreign to Scripture. This is an unchecked default of the human heart to withdraw into isolation, which is why the author of Hebrews calls on his audience this way, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. just want to add real quickly, the fact that he says let us consider means it takes great intentionality and purpose. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. Christian community is a two-way street, meaning that each believer has been gifted a certain way, and the body needs that gift. If we don't gather together with the body and engage the body in a meaningful way, that is, using our gifts to serve and love one another, to stir each other up to love, of good work, to love and good works, we are robbing the body of Christ. In verse 42, Luke highlights this gathering together and kind of what it looks like in a meaningful way, and that being fellowship that third point of verse 42. And he unpacks that a little further in verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We see here that community is so much more than the teaching and the preaching of the word, although it's definitely not less than that. But it is more than that. The community had all things in common. The term here is used to denote a shared activity, a strong commonality. Think of almost like a marriage. This is encouraging to see, isn't it? The power of the gospel transforming the heart of man to the point that man would sell his possessions for the benefit of another. What we are not talking about here is any sort of socialist, communist, governmental system. That is cohorced. That is through coercion. Sorry, can't even say it. But that is through forced taking unwillfully the dollars and redistributing them. That is not what we're talking about here. We are talking about a spirit-empowered, spirit-wrought desire to meet the need of a fellow believer. And the culture at large will be witness to this. They were a witness to this in this first century church. 
and they would see the great transformations that are taking place within this community. They would see that they, these groups of people started to gathering together and call themselves Christians. They would see them start to live their lives together. They would see them talk about this man named Jesus, and they would see them sell their possessions and give it away. And John Christ in John 13 hit that point exactly. As a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, we live in a wealthy society, and in particular, we live in a wealthy part of Louisville, don't we? And in a wealthy society, this, the idea of physical needs isn't always at the forefront as much as it would be in, say, this first century church or other parts of the world or other parts of time and history. But it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And Fisherville has been such an encouragement to me in this area. Fisherville is quick to respond to the physical needs in our church, and this is an absolutely generous body of believers. And I commend you on that, and I thank you for the way you have encouraged me in that. But we are also called to serve the body with our spiritual gifts. And sometimes, due to the immediacy of a need, uh, it might call upon us for a time to serve in an area that may not be our first choice. Or it may not fit maybe one of our primary giftings. But just like the speed with which we will react to a physical need with such grace and generosity, we should be just as quick to respond to the needs with our spiritual gifts, meeting those spiritual needs inside the body with a sense of urgency and speed to meet the need that is there in front of us. Each and every member of the body of Christ has been gifted, and each is called upon to love the body through service. The body suffers when we don't engage, and we suffer when we don't avail ourselves to the means of grace that is the church and the joy that comes from loving on another member of this body. And it hurts our witness to the outside world when we fail to engage. How are you loving the body of Christ? What does this look like in your life? If you leave this church one day, if we leave, and I pray you don't, and I pray we don't, but if God calls us out of here to move on somewhere else, will the church realize, because you are so engaged and entrenched in the body life of this church, would the church realize it just lost a hand? Would you realize that maybe the church just lost its foot? It just lost its eye because you are so engaged and entrenched with the church. Do you know what your spiritual gift mix is? Are you actively looking for the needs in the church community that, that need to be met? Are we at Fisherville a compelling community because of the unity and the love that we show to one another? Is the surrounding culture drawn to our love or is it repulsed by a lack of love? 
Luke also reveals that this community gathered together outside the temple by engaging one another in their homes day by day, breaking bread together. And we see this in verse 42, that they broke bread. And he goes into more detail in verse 46. He says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It is in the home that more intimate relationships begin to develop. They showed hospitality by opening their homes and having meals together. Now, there's so much more to hospitality, but due to the nature of what is being discussed in this passage, we're going to hone in on the home. But there is a lot to hospitality. But they showed hospitality by opening their homes and sharing meals. Now, there's differing opinions on whether or not this is referring to the Lord's Supper. And that, the reason you get different commentators will have different opinions on this. And the reason is because we know it was common for the Lord's Supper in first century and, and beyond to have the Lord's Supper with a full meal. Um, in any case, the point that is being made here is that they were living life together in a meaningful way, unified around the gospel, Christ, and the mission to which they were given. And it's in these moments that we are able, in a more intimate environment, to spur one another on to love and good works. This is an outworking of the great commandment to teach one another to obey all that is commanded to us. And it's easy for us, and we can at times, reduce fellowship down to its most fundamental parts, like breaking a bread. Although eating together is an important aspect of fellowship, it's not less than that, but it is certainly much more than that. Fellowship is also so much more than just knowing what is going on in other believers' lives. While it is critical that we do that, we need to know what is going on in each other's lives. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. We must be careful not to exclude and separate the command of discipleship when we think of fellowship. That is the driving each other towards worship, towards an awe and an adoration of Christ, which will spill over into the obedience of all things that God has commanded us to do, including evangelism. Hospitality is one of those, it's a very effective tool to bring the gospel to the lost, especially in our current culture. And I'm afraid it's one of the tools that we tend to neglect. It's easily overlooked. Our homes give us prime opportunity to show the unbeliever love, to let them see a Christian relationship firsthand, and to dispel the many false notions that they may have about Christianity and Christians, because there's a lot of them out there, aren't there? They will have an opportunity to see our love and our gratitude for our Savior as they hear what Christ has done in our lives through the sharing of our testimonies. And it's through hospitality that we're able to bring the non-believer directly in contact with other believers. A recent example of the power of hospitality is seen in the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, the author of The Gospel Comes Without a House, with a House Key. Rosaria was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, which is not known for its as a bastion of conservative agenda, agenda, by the way. And at the age of 36, at the height of her career at the University of Syracuse, she wrote a critique, critical critique, of the Promise Keepers movement. So this was a little while ago. 
and that, that critique was published in a local paper, and a local pastor read the article and responded to her. He took a piece of paper, he wrote her a letter, gracious, loving, but he proceeded to ask her questions that were intended to challenge her worldview and intended to challenge her understanding of Christianity. And at the end, he lovingly invited them, her to sit down and have dinner and talk about it. While she hem-hawed, she went back and forth on whether or not she was actually going to do this. Um, but she happened to be working on a book, which was a, a critique of the religious right. And so she thought to herself, well, if nothing else, I'll get some research done for my book by sitting down with this local pastor. And so she did. She obliged him. She met with the pastor and his wife for dinner, and what developed was an unlikely friendship. I say unlikely for her. Rosaria began to go to their house on a regular basis as they opened their home to her. They began to love on her. They would stop by with baked goods at her front door. If they didn't hear from her in a while, they would knock on her front door to check in on her, see how she was doing. They showed her the love of Christ. And looking back on the initial meeting, Rosario was captured by the way that the pastor had prayed. She had heard a few Christian prayers, she said, at, I think it was primarily centered around like LGBTQ rallies, and I think the prayers were primarily against LGBT, LGBTQ agendas. So she had in her mind what was probably going to happen when she prayed, but that's not at all what happened. What she overheard was a man interacting with his Lord and Savior, communing with his Lord. And she was captivated by that. It was something she had never heard, and she knew right then there was something different about this. She would eventually visit their church, and she would see the love that the people had for one another in that body. And the compassion and the love that they showed her, even though she is well known for her stance on Christianity. You see, she had created a monster of Christianity in her mind, and that image was slowly and methodically being destroyed by reality. And it wouldn't be long that through the preaching of the gospel she would be gloriously saved. And in an interview article that in an interview for an article that she did later, she described how they didn't just give her the gospel and run. And they did give her the gospel. It wasn't that they didn't. But they proved to her that they were interested in having a relationship with her. That they truly cared about her. And continually showed her love. What does that look like in our lives here at Fisherville? Would the world look at us and would they recognize us as a hospitable people? How often do we use hospitality in our evangelism efforts? Do we engage the lost by seeking them in long-term relationships, to get to know them and to look for ways to show them that love? Look with me at the remainder of verse 46. It says, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. What we see from the results of this gospel love towards one another reveals to us the posture and the tone of their meals and their time together. These times of fellowship with other believers resulted in worship. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. This is the basic building blocks of discipleship, spending time with one another, not just for the sake of meeting and hanging out, 
although that is important and critical, certainly not less than that. But if we end there, if we don't move further with it, we are missing out on so much joy in the means of grace that is the church. Their time together was such that they led each other to worship and to praise. Are we seeking in every encounter with a brother and sister in Christ to encourage them in the Lord, to point them back to Scripture, to exhort them, and even challenge, and if necessary, rebuke them, if necessary. It's a means of grace. And does that time together with fellow believers, does it lead us to worship and praise God? Or does our time with believers, does it leave us bitter and maybe even discouraged? What do our meetings look like? Discipleship is far too often thought of as an overly complicated task, isn't it? When in reality, it's quite simple. And we see it taking place in the life of this church. You don't have to have a master's or a doctorate degree in theology to work through a book of the Bible with a fellow believer over a regularly scheduled meal, a regularly scheduled coffee. Or just to seek biblical answers and apply those answers to the difficult situations that we come across in everyday life. We also know from the remainder of verse 42 that there was prayer involved in the life of this church. Prayer coming out of the gratitude and just the awe that they had of what God was doing in their midst. It doesn't go into specific details about it, but I can imagine that there was communal prayer. I can imagine that they were praying for each other regularly as they met with one another, as well as the greater mission of their church. Prayers of praise and gratitude for what was going on in their midst. We too are called to be a praying church. And prayer should be the major aspect of our time together as we meet together, praising God in prayer, praying for sanctification, praying for our leaders. And the greater culture had a front row seat to the kingdom of God that was taking place in the lives of these ambassadors for Christ. This community wasn't just talking a good game. They were living out the truths of the gospel and bringing the kingdom to bear for the world to see. And we see the results in verses 43 and 47. In verse 43, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 47, praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done. Now, we don't have time this morning to fully unpack what is going on here with these signs and the wonders, or to, to do a, a theology here of uh, miracles. But what we are not talking about are the spiritual gifts that we see in the church today. Miracles always supported the message that was being delivered at that time. They, the miracles were not the message themselves. The miracles performed through the apostles were God's stamp of approval on the message that they were delivering. And it would have been clear to the outside world that God was working mightily in this church. Their love their devotion, their gratitude for Christ that overflowed in their love for each other and finally to the broader community, 
They found favor with all people. A church that is devoted to right doctrine, devoted to fellowship, devoted to discipleship, church that is spurring one another on to love and good works, will have an impact on that surrounding culture. The love of Christ was on beautiful display, and the culture took notice, and people were saved when they came into contact with the gospel-rich environment of that community. So we too at Fisherville, in closing, are also an embassy of Christ. We too have a mission to spread the kingdom of God to the four corners of this earth. And we've made great leaps and bounds missionally as we've increased our Lottie Moon mission offering year to year. Our footprint, Fisherville's footprint now in Toronto and Germany. We've been to South Africa, um, Utah, everywhere that we're excuse me, everywhere that we are currently engaged, and I'm grateful for this church for that. But we cannot forget the everyday mission right here in Louisville, where our embassy is located. There is a culture right here that is under the dominion of the world, and it's dying daily. We must be on mission. We, like the believers in the first century community, have everything we need to complete the task at hand. We have the gospel We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a very clear mission field. We have a church. And we have a testimony. We are called to gather with one another to the greatest extent possible in unity. We are to grow in our knowledge and our love of Christ and our love for one another. We are to go serve the people of God, show the love of God to Louisville, and bring the gospel to bear. This is an example this morning of a this example of the christian community this morning should encourage us it should exhort us it should admonish us it should challenge us but more importantly it should leave us in awe and wonder and gratitude of our lord and savior if you though if you're here this morning and you are not a citizen of this kingdom you can be If you repent of your sins, turn from those sins, and believe on Christ, you can join this family and be a part of this kingdom. Let's pray. Father.